Welcome to Voices from the Field, a podcast produced by the National Collaborating Centre for Aboriginal Health. The centre focuses on innovative research and community-based initiatives promoting the health and well-being of First Nations, Inuit and Métis peoples in Canada. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation on governance and Indigenous research with guests Dr. Linda Tuhiwai-Smith and Bonnie Healy. This Indigenous Research Fireside Chat was hosted by the Office of Indigenous Affairs at the University of Winnipeg in partnership with the First Nations Health and Social Secretariat of Manitoba. It took place on April 11, 2018 at the University of Winnipeg and was moderated by Vanessa Tate, a member of South Indian Lake, Manitoba, and a policy analyst and researcher with Nunandawegamek. Dr. Linda Tuhiwai-Smith of Eritrea, or New Zealand, is an internationally accomplished scholar and researcher who's worked in and influenced the field of Maori education and health for many years. Her groundbreaking book, Decolonizing Methodologies, Research and Indigenous Peoples, remains an international bestseller. She currently serves as Professor of Maori and Indigenous Studies at the University of Waikato. Bonnie Healy is a registered nurse from the Kainai Nation, or Blood Tribe. She's currently the Operations Manager of the Alberta First Nations Information Governance Centre. Her clear understanding of and passion for data as a tool for change drives her work with First Nations leadership and communities. Over the course of this program, both women will provide insights into opportunities and challenges on doing and supporting research, including health research with Indigenous communities as Indigenous scholars. Thank you all for joining us here at the Fireside Chat. I would like you to imagine that we are sitting by a fire, as that is the space where our ancestors, our relatives, our knowledge keepers told us stories, shared teachings, and enlightened our spirits with their knowledge and sharing of their journeys. As we are going to be hearing from these two amazing Indigenous women who are trailblazers for each and every one of us here today, today this is a sacred space of dialogue as we look, and we look forward to the discussion. So the first question is, what does self-determination in research mean to you as Indigenous researchers? I think it means multiple things in terms of research, because there's research for becoming self-determining as Indigenous peoples. And then there's research um, that a self-determined people might determine. You know, so if you can sort of imagine that we've got to try and achieve both. Uh, one is to use knowledge to inform our struggles uh, for self-determination. And the other one is to imagine what it means in the century to be a self-determining Indigenous people, an Indigenous nation, an Indigenous community, an Indigenous family, an Indigenous individual. Uh, because each of those entities um, is an embodiment of self-determination and, is, and, you know, one expects then individuals to practice being self-determining as an everyday practice. So I think 
research plays a contribution in that, but is not the only determinant um, of how that might look and how we might imagine it. So I tend to see research as um, our way of uh, recreating, reclaiming, creating um, knowledge, both new knowledge, uh, but also retrieving the knowledge of our ancestors that we need to live with today. And I think research is just one part of a wider puzzle of self-determination, but it's an important part. The words that I'll share about self-determination and my understanding as a Blackfoot person, they all come from my ancestors and my elders. And I'm the uh, uh, great-great-granddaughter of Head Chief Red Crow who signed our Treaty 7 um, when, when we entered into those relationships. And when I talk to our government partners and our funders, both federally and provincially in Alberta, um, I make it very, very important for them to understand um, that self-determination and sovereignty weren't part of treaty negotiation. Um, my ancestors didn't um, give up them, uh, their identities uh, and uh, sovereign um, acknowledgements as Blackfoot people when they entered into treaty. They entered into treaty with an understanding that they would share the land with the settlers. And the treaty relationship to my ancestors um, was um, done in ceremony. So it's the meaning on, on our side is uh, when we enter into a treaty relationship, it's the most utmost promise that you're going to uphold what you said you were going to do, and you and you closed it in ceremony. So as Leroy Little Bear says, that's as good as putting it on stone. <laughs> so the Ten Commandments, so to speak, right? The, I guess the quickest way that, uh, and I love the way Leroy Little Bear had states, states it. He says, the quickest way to self-determination is knowing your language. If you don't speak Blackfoot, you don't think Blackfoot. And it's important for you, if you're going to be self-determined, to think Indigenous. And, to, and for me, to know my language, to think Blackfoot. I'm going to ask Madden for sharing. Um, further to the question, I would like to um, ask, uh, can you describe one significant um, accomplishment as well as challenge you may have um, experienced as an indige Indigenous researcher to assert self-determination in research, and how have you addressed these Singular moments, no. But I know if I look back on my career and on, say, almost 40 years of being a, a researcher and an educator, um, one of the most transformational things that have happened in our world is that we have communities now who naturally think that they can do the research they can write the proposal, they can govern the research, they have the researchers in the community, and they can publish. And so to me, that's what gives me an indication that our communities are in much greater control. But you know, my, my final point about self-determination is not the end point. Um, we were self-determining until colonisation arrived. Um, we seek that sort of legal uh, 
if you like, definition of self-determination. But that's not the end point. The end point is being self-determining peoples. And we don't know really what that looks like. I think we know it doesn't look like what it used to because we have also changed. Many of our institutions that we had, you know, prior to colonisation have disappeared, some of which were disappeared with deliberately by us. They're no longer useful. Um, and so we've built new institutions and those institutions fit our times. So, you know, in the future, what does it mean to be self-determining? I think we will build new institutions. We will, um, you know, have new kinds of relationships. We will try to be new kinds of ind Indigenous peoples. But I can't determine that. Um, you know, my role is to help create the spaces and the ideas and the language uh, for how we might imagine that. To really make sure that free and prior informed consent and the principles of ownership, control, access and possession are upheld in, in any data collection relationship, and, and this includes research. So my first OCAP data sharing agreement was not with Alberta, was not with an academic institution, was not with Canada. It was with the WHO. The, the accomplishment of, of having that relationship and having that data sharing agreement was a huge challenge, but it was also a huge win. Because it, what it did is it established a precedence. And it said, if I can have an OCAP data sharing agreement with a World Health Organization, then you as an academic institution or you as a province or, you know, you as federal government, you can have this too. So it's really trying to really um, move um, in those ways that you can achieve those highest things. But so the, the challenges are achieving ethical space and those ethical relationships. And the wins are is when it happens. So uh, what advice would you offer to those students who are interested in pursuing a career as an Indigenous scholar? What does it mean to be an Indigenous scholar? I think it, what it means is to take on, you know, a great deal of responsibility um, for defending our people, for trying to create spaces for our people in often quite hostile environments uh, because those spaces offer, you know, necessary opportunities, I think, for our, um, our own communities. I think my generation have been more political and have seen uh, the academy as an institution that needed to be um, transformed in order for, you know, Indigenous scholarship to exist, let alone thrive. I think the next generation um, have other responsibilities. Uh, well, they will always, we will always have to defend our spaces, I think, in those kinds of institutions. Um, and that's just defend the space. That's, you know, there's also the requirement to defend what our people do. Scholarship is important, but understand why you're doing that. Do you have to, you know, major in Indigenous knowledge? No. I've got great young colleagues who are, 
you know, they're philosophers, they're scientists, they're in the, you know, academic legal space, they're in all kinds of uh, disciplines. They don't necessarily study Indigenous knowledge, but they identify as Indigenous scholars. They participate in the community of Indigenous scholars. They mentor Indigenous students. You know, and I, I do hear some going, oh, I don't know why we're the ones who get, um, you know, asked to look after the problem students, i.e. the Indigenous ones. Well, I think it's an honour. And I, I think the first advice is to know yourself, be grounded in who you are. And if you really, really know yourself, and if you're an Indigenous person, know your language. So you can start to think like that Indigenous person. Um, and if you know yourself and you're grounded in who you are, you know where your value systems and belief systems are from. Um, you can have that better understanding, especially if you're non-Indigenous coming to work with First Nations, to really um, be open to a parallel worldview and to know that your worldview is Western. And that is where your value system and, and where you come from, but to really be open to the parallels. And when you learn self-actualization and learn who you are, especially as who you are as an Indigenous person, and understanding that Western education doesn't make you the expert on anything, right? And it's good to have it. It's good to have that foundational theory to really understand how to guide um, and support those that need to have voice and in research. As a new researcher, find those mentors that are going to gently um, transfer that knowledge and their understanding to you as you go through life and become stronger. And then you have that responsibility to transfer that to the younger generations. So if you're taking on this work in this world, it's important to find those people that are going to support you in what it is that you want to do. Don't get stuck on the end thing of my PhD or my theses or, you know, my grant deliverables or, you know, I need to have some outcomes or publication. Because if you get stuck on those end things, you're going to miss the importance of building those good relationships. And in order to have those good relationships, so when you're on your own, Go into a nation that you're wanting to do work with and don't even mention research for about a year, but you get to know those people and you get to know their way of life and the way they understand the world. And then you can start working with them on what is their priorities? What do they want to change? What do they want to fix? And how can you support them? So this is um, on the other side of things. So what advice would you offer to those researchers, whether it be you know, Indigenous or non-Indigenous, um, who are currently interested in undertaking Indigenous research? It's something you prepare for, something you train in, something you read about, something that you, you know, find mentors for. It's like any field of research. If anything, you know, and some disciplines might argue that, you know, your role is to go into a community almost as a naive observer. You immerse yourself in it and, you know, have that immersive experience. Um, I can see why 
they might argue what that's about, but it's very hard as an Indigenous researcher to go into any kind of Indigenous community and be naive. So I don't think, you know, taking on Indigenous research is a simple or easy option. I think it's a, a thoughtful practice. For me, it's it's been a life career um, doing Indigenous research, and I don't feel by any means an expert in it. I'm always a learner around um, Indigenous research. We're the most researched peoples in the world. I still hear that from Indigenous peoples all around the world, that this perception and that, you know, I had to struggle with it. What does it mean to believe you're the most researched people in the world? What, what does that actually mean? Um, because it just, you know, just physically, it would it makes me want to pull back. So there's something about the penetration of the gaze of researchers from the outside, something about the intrusion something about the body of a researcher, um, something about the power dynamics of a researcher. So that's how I started, just bit by bit trying to put this puzzle together um, of being a, a researcher. I'm not sure, oh yeah, sometimes I might define myself as a Māori woman researcher or an Indigenous researcher or decolonizing researcher or kaupapa Māori researcher. I mean, I think those are all kind of um, labels, uh, but they're not necessarily ones of, um, they don't complete the identity. They're not sufficient yet, in my view, to say what that all means. I think they're all part of a incomplete puzzle. Well, I, I think um, Linda's given you some excellent um, understandings through lived experience on how to really think about this um, idea of doing research with Indigenous people um, in a very, very, again, self-actualization understanding of who you are as a person. But it's important to um, to know the policies that you're bound by. So if you're going to enter into a research relationship with um, Indigenous people and you get a grant uh, from one of the tri-councils, know that Chapter 9. And um, I helped co-write Chapter 9 in the sense of I won't own any of that chapter. Um, there's too many biblical words in it, maize and shells, and it, there was no wordsmithing it. It was impossible. But what I always tell researchers is the most important thing in Chapter 9 is the preamble. The preamble states that First Nations protocols and research ethics will preempt that chapter. And that is the most important piece in that Chapter 9, in that Tri-Council. Know the policies because, and know your limitations. If you're doing research as an academic individual, as a faculty member, as uh, trying to have tenure with an, with an institution, you need to know what you can and cannot sign for. So don't come into an Indigenous community promising something when you actually don't have the authority to do it. 
And that's things like that are very important to indigenous people. They will fight for intellectual property and your institution won't let them have it. And so those are things you need to understand of what is their policy around that? What is their policy around free and prior informed consent? And then you yourself as a researcher, one of the things I found uh, researchers love is uh, they own that data that it's like their firstborn, right? <laughs> you ask a researcher, who owns the data? Well, I do. <laughs> like, no, that's not your lived experience. That's not who you did not give this, you know, and uh, this data. This, this comes from a place, a people, right? And so know the rightful owners. And so everything I talked about, about uh, that worldview of which it comes from. And you have to respect the possession piece. So know right away as an Indigenous, when you're going into an Indigenous relationship, that the rightful owner needs to be recognized in the ownership of that information. Because they're the ones that are going to have to help you contextualize the information from their worldview. And, uh, and, and you need to be okay with that. So that's why it's really important to know yourself and know your limitations. And if a university or an institution doesn't have the policies that are updated with the promises of the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation, and the United Nations Declaration's Rights of Indigenous People, then you work with those policymakers to make sure it's updated and it's changed and it's amended so that the academic institutions can have those relationships. Now I'm a reviewer on CIHR. I'm part of their reviewer group. Your heart has to be in it, you know, especially if you're an Indigenous person and you're doing research with your own people. You have to sit with them in ceremony till the end of your life. So if you wrong them or harm them in any way, you have to remember that. You're still going to have to sit beside them. And, and even in the, in, when you leave this world, this physical world, you'll have to have ancestral accountability. So knowing what you're doing, try and do it in the best way that you can, and knowing the limitations of the Western policies and legislation. Thank you. Kira, thank you, and as well as Gnaskumatan. To hear more podcasts in this series, go to the Voices from the Field homepage, located on the website of the National Collaborating Centre for Aboriginal Health, nccah.ca. Music in this podcast provided by Blue Dot Sessions, courtesy of a Creative Commons license. Learn more about their music at www.sessions.blue.